Hello there, and thanks for listening to the Over Our Garden Mall music podcast. The full podcast, including all songs chosen by Stuart, can be heard on Spotify. Search Over Our Garden Mall. However, if you can't access Spotify, this is a copy of all the chat from the podcast. You can, of course, listen to Stuart's songs on Apple Music too, just not in this podcast. Apologies for this, and hopefully one day we can publish in full on Apple as we do on Spotify. Enjoy the chat and stay safe. Hello there, and welcome to our latest episode of Over Our Garden Mall, a music podcast that is setting out to establish, if possible, what the best year for popular music was. To help us do that, we will be joined by a special guest on each episode who will nominate their favourite year and provide a playlist of songs from that year, which we will listen to, discuss, and no doubt debate. I'm Brian Davidson, and I'm joined again today by my co host and neighbour, McDee. Hi, mate. Howdy. How's it going? I'm very good, thanks. Good man. And more importantly, by today's guest, Stuart Cosgrove. Stuart is an Hiya, award. Good to be with you. Hi, Stuart. How you doing, mate? Very good indeed. Yeah. And, and thanks for, for joining us tonight. Really appreciate that. Stuart is an award-winning journalist and author. He is also the co-host of two podcasts, Top Media and Off the Ball. So no pressure today, then, mate. <laughs> I was also surprised to read online that Stuart has an award-winning bodybuilding career, but I'm pretty sure now that that was a different Stuart Cosgrove. I googled, <laughs> or, or was it? Ah, well, I'm not going to reveal that until later <laughs> in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, Stuart, again, welcome to our podcast, and thanks very much for making the time to join us, mate. Thank you. Really looking forward to playing the tunes you've chosen from your nominated year, which is? 1971, and the reason I've chosen that year, it's one of the great transformative years in the history of soul music, the great love of my life. Perfect. Perfect, that's ideal. If you've heard the podcast before, you may have heard Amanda McCune. Um, when Amanda was on, she was talking about 1971 as the best year for music. So it will be interesting to hear from Stuart why 71 is the year for him, but he's already outlined some of that. Um, so, intro's over. Let's kick off today's discussion by playing Stuart's first selection. Released in May 1971, this is Gene Knight with Mr Big Stuff. That was Mr Big Stuff by Gene Knight. So let's get stuck into the discussion, Stuart. Why 1971? Well, the very simple reason I've chosen 1971 is the year that I left Scotland uh, to go to university in the north of England, and it coincided with one of the great transformative years of soul music, where the music that I'd grown, grown up with, which was largely, you know, Motown and uh, chart soul music of the 60s, was beginning to kind of transform into many, many different forms of music infused by by rock, by funk, by acid. And so 1971 became this great transformative year. And because it was the year that I was away from Scotland doing things like getting my first ever flat, you know, having to buy a record player and, and rediscover what it actually meant to have vinyl. It was a great, great year in my life. I fell in love. Numerous things that I could say. But this was a great year. And the reason I like Gene Knight, Mr. Big Stuff, is actually something that's been around uh, almost all of my um, uh, modern life. I, I periodically, not very often, but I periodically uh, DJ. And when I do DJ, it's usually to kind of slightly older crowds. But there's that record, Gene Knight, Mr. Big Stuff, 
on stats records, absolutely guaranteed to get them danced. It fills the floor. And it's, you know, it's not, you know, it's not ambiguity. They just love it and they run out. It's very popular with women as well. I don't know what it is they're imagining the song's about, but nonetheless, <laughs> it seems to be very popular with women to go and dance to. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's turned into one of those iconic songs. And she had a bit of a, a sort of difficult career, didn't she? She wasn't yeah. somebody who, she didn't just make it. It was a no, time No, I, I mean, I think, I think, be honest, uh, uh, Brian, I think that she would even to this day be seen as a kind of lesser known soul artist. She's not someone that's in the, the kind of higher upper echelons of soul music. Uh, and of course, she's a southern singer, and you can feel that kind of southern backbeat, that fat back drum sound, and whatever. It's a great, great record to dance to, and really, really nice record. So you mentioned about uh, you know your reasons for seventy one. So did you say that was the year you went to university? Yes, I went down to University of Hull uh, okay. from uh, Perth, where I'd grown up, uh, and um, left home. And as I was saying, beginning to really discover what mattered to me in music. And I met a, a young woman who I, I met at the, the first ever kind of soul night at Hull University. Uh, her name was Pat Wall. She was from Rochdale in Lancashire. She was a brilliant, brilliant dancer. And she was the one that kind of, you know, uh, brought me into the harder northern soul scene, the underground soul scene, the rare soul scene, and the scene that became, you know, a, an important part of the evolution and development of my taste in soul music. And no doubt we'll, we'll come on to that a bit as well, sir, as we as we chat through. So 71 was your chosen year. Were there any other years that ran it close? Well, there's always um, there's always uh, good years throughout, I think, you know, the 70s, the 80s, uh, and indeed the 60s. I could have chosen about half a dozen different uh, years. Um, uh, I like to actually uh, periodically choose the 76, 77 era, only to really get it up punk rockers, right? Because <laughs> at, that time, at that time, I was uh, going to Northern Soul Nights like every night. And it was the true subculture. We're not talking about middle-class art students from London. We're talking about ordinary working-class people into their subculture. And I remember the first ever night that uh, the Sex Pistols were on tour, they turned up at uh, Cleethorpes. And Cleethorpes was by then also a very big Northern Soul uh, club. And such was the size of the Northern Soul followership at that time. They had to open two venues in the same town. The Sex Pistols played to 300 people. The Northern Soul Club, 2,000 people. That was, that was kind of the gulf between the two. And to this day, although... Uh, punk rock still exerts this kind of mythical and important kind of almost kind of art school power in the history of rock music. It wasn't anywhere close to Northern Soul as an active subculture for working class kids. Yeah, absolutely, mate. And, and the, the list that you've, you've um, picked for today will cover some of those songs, I guess, and, and some that are obviously not Northern Soul, a lot bigger and yeah. a lot more iconic, I guess, in their own way. Yeah. So we asked you for a list, I think it was about, uh, I think it's about 13 songs you've given us, Stuart. Was there, was there any that you haven't put on the list? Is there any others from the year thinking I, I should have stuck on that? Or you, you know what, there, there were probably about 200. <laughs> I, made, I made the decision, I made the decision that I wanted to go with records 
that charted in the Billboard R&B charts in America, and so were the top-selling singles of the year 1971, a time when African-American music had its own charts. It was, if you like, segregated from the traditional rock and pop charts. And I wanted to illustrate that these songs were not only top-selling songs, but that they followed a kind of formal disruption of the music, really interesting in terms of the way in which the music's expanding and stretching and challenging itself as a form. So it's a great, great year. And the next song that we're going to play, Sly and the Family Stones, The Family Affair, you couldn't ask for a better example. It's infused with kind of, you know, acid rock with a West Coast hippie sound of San Francisco. And it's got this whole idea of, of music that's almost saturated in acid. Yeah, I think I mean, when we come on to that, you, you, you'll hear that sound as well. It's just so different still now, really, today, isn't it, yeah. to, to what it was. And just to kind of wrap up on the Gene Knight chat, you, you did mention about her being a bit of a kind of, not a one-hit wonder, but, but you know, our star Sean Brightest, I guess, when, when this was out. Yeah. But, um, but, it was, but it was big, you know, it was, um, I was reading it was double platinum. It yeah. was the biggest selling single that Stax had had, I think. For um, a very so, long time, yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, the other thing about it is, that she did a number of other recordings that are probably, if not been lost to history, are probably lying somewhere, maybe in a, a can somewhere in Memphis yet to be discovered. There's quite a lot of recordings at the big studios, Motown, at Stax and at other studios where they're only now being discovered by people that are able, able to digitize tracks that were not released at the time. Uh, and I'm sure Gene Knight's got other things that we don't know about. Yeah, well, hopefully they'll um, they'll come to light at some point. It'd be great to hear them. And she, she had this sort of she had that big selling, but she also got recognition uh, in the following year's Grammys. She was shortlisted um, yeah. for a Grammy, and she actually she lost out to Aretha Franklin. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. you know what? It's like, well, you 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 guys will know all about this. It's like. Uh, coming second to Barcelona, isn't it? It's like, you know, you've got to say, well, we tried, but they were just a bit better than us. You know? we, we can't even come second to our broth at the moment, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I mean, here, here, here. I mean, yeah, I think it was Bridge Over Top of Water, wasn't it? So it's, mm. um, you know, absolutely um, iconic in itself. Yeah, so that was Gene Knight, a great way to kick it off. And as you say, a kind of dance floor filler all day long. Um, mm -hmm. Song number two uh, is Sly and Family Stone with Family Affair. So was this a, a bit of a kind of change of direction for them at the time? Because obviously they were big, weren't they? Before They're huge. This yeah. And in lots of ways, they reflected changes in the city that they're from. They're a, they're a West Coast band. They are a band as opposed to a group of singers who go into a studio and sing to a backing track. So they would actually play live as a band. And they were massively talented. And, and one of the things about Sly Stone, who's the Sly of Sly and the Family Stone, uh, Sly had also been a very big DJ in the West Coast um, in the kind of era that's you know now known as a kind of uh, rock era, hippie era, the era of Charles Manson. He was in, his backdrop was that world, uh, and he was a great DJ of the day. Um, but interestingly enough, almost every description you hear of him was that he was super talented in 
electronics, particularly the new synthesizers that were coming out at that time, uh, electronic pianos and things like that. He could master almost any instrument. And his only real rival at that kind of genius ability across the instruments was Stevie Wonder. The two of them were contemporaries of each other and they were both fascinated by the new technology that was coming into music at that time. And so in lots of ways, it's 1971, but it's a song that's so, so different from some of the others I'm going to play. Mm. It just feels like a brick, you know, it's like the shock of the new almost, you know. Yeah, and you can imagine how different it sounded then. Mm. You know, even with the benefit of hindsight, it still sounds pretty radical, but in, in 71, yeah. you know, there was, yeah. there was kind of nothing like it, I guess. Well, I think by then there was still lots of groups going around um, traveling in America dressed in their kind of matching suits, singing Harmony Soul in the great tradition of Motown. And then this band comes along that just blows everybody away. And it's it's like, the reason that 71 excites me is that you see soul music erupting in all these different forms. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the album it came from, am I right in saying that that originally had a different title to the that ended up being um, there's a riot going on because I, I think originally we we're going to call Africa Talks to You. Yeah, yeah. And it was. Uh, sorry, I think as I read it, I think it was when um, uh, when what's going on then came out. I think yeah. that obviously had a big impact on 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 lots of people and they reassessed. I think their name and stuff. Yeah, the the um, the Africa Talks to You. One of the other big big threads of influence at this time was the the Back to Africa Black Nationalist Movement, um, which was influencing soul music across a number of different uh, forms. But interestingly as well, uh, you mentioned there's a riot going on. Um, Sly and the Family Stone had played uh, a gig at, at Morris Park in Chicago and a riot erupted in it. And the police closed down the event and the gig was canceled. So there was no gig even although a riot had gone on. So when you get to the track and the album that says there's a riot going on, it's nothing. It's just <laughs> simply silence. Um, but they're, they're, they're great. I, I briefly, briefly, briefly thought about writing a book that never leaves that park, that never leaves Morris Park, because right. it's quite interesting. It's where Sam Cooke and Curtis Mayfield used to uh, play, sing against each other on Sundays in the gospel competitions in Chicago. It's where Barack Obama did his victory speech when he became the first black president. So you could write a great book and never leave that park. Yeah. Um, and if I get, if I'm struggling in two years time, I'll be back to that one. <laughs> I'm sure you won't be. I think there was some other musicians, I think on, certainly on the album uh, and the family affair that were, uh, were sort of adding some value as well. They had the likes of sort of Billy Preston and, uh, yeah. who also think uh, Bobby Womack, I think was, was, was kicking about and Ike Turner as yeah. well. Did a bit, yeah, that's right. And, yeah. and you know, people now forget, I don't know, that there might have been a recent documentary about this, but um, Billy Preston had effectively joined the Beatles, and he's often referred to as the fifth Beatle, as the guy that we would bring in for concerts, and again, he was one of the kind of geniuses of the uh, of, of soul creativity at that time, and the Beatles recognised that. So he, you would almost, you could almost lay claim that Sly and the Family Stone were a super group. In, in that sense of bringing together great super talent from different uh, resources. 
Yeah, I've just finished watching that Beatles documentary, actually, Stuart, yeah. and um, yeah. it turns out to be very important, Billy Preston, to the Beatles, because yeah. um, they, were, they were kind of breaking up, really, at the time, yeah. and he was the glue that, that sort of brought them back together and gave back them together. their mojo and, and stuff, so... Yeah. Um, yeah, just, just sorry, just just to interject about Sly and the Family Stone. One of the things that really struck me watching documentaries and reading things over the years, a they were a multicultural band when that hadn't really been done, um, and and also I mean I'm not a musician, right? But Larry Graham, I always remember uh, Bootsy Collins kind of talking about how Larry Graham invented the is it fuzz bass he called it, you know that that kind of sound. Yeah, because Bootsy got credit for it, but apparently it was he goes yeah it was Larry Graham, you know these big star spangled. Glasses on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, absolutely. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, make a good point there, Andrew, about them being uh, a multicultural band at that time. Watching them in the audience when the riot went on, when they uh, when they didn't sing, there's a riot going on because there was one going on. Um, they the person that was in the audience, who's a local 15, 16 year old uh, African American. Uh, kid who was just along for the for, for the concert was Chaka Khan and she had just joined the band Rufus and if you look at Rufus featuring Chaka Khan they're very similar to Sly and the Family Stone very right. similar in their style and in their kind of love of rock music and uh, hard, hardcore performance live instrumentation you know really interesting that's also how she got her name. She was in the audience and she chucked a cat. Chuck a cat. And Jack a cat. So, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll need to mute you again, maybe if you keep laughing. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. One, one last thing, Stuart, right? When you mentioned that he was a well-known DJ, I, I was playing a Bo Brummel's album recently. Yeah. And I kind of knew this before. He produced it. So oh, I, mean, did he? I didn't know that. Yeah, he produced yeah. Bo Brummel's. Yeah. Um, so like Laugh Laugh and uh, what was the other one I really liked? Anyway, the, I, I like the Bo Brummels, although I know about four songs, really, to be honest. But yeah. I Sly, Sly Stone produced them as well, so he was already in production before he, his band. Yeah, yeah. And they it's sort of massively influential, generally, weren't they? They talk about kind of, you know, hip-hop and various other things starting to come out of the way this music was developing yeah. at that point. So, you know, through the ah. 70s and 80s, it became more and more um, mm. important, I guess. Will we, um, will we stick it on? Yep. So from the album There's a Riot Going On, uh, reaching number one in the US, this is Family Affair by Sly and the Family Stone. D do you know if that, do you know the Deacon Blue song, um, Closing Time? I do, yeah. Did they ever end up getting any any kind of litigation or anything for that? Because there was chat at the time that the introduction is, is in effect fa Family Affair. It's the, yeah. Yeah. You don't know if that ever came to anything, do you? I, I don't. I'll ask Ricky the next time I see him because he, he would be honest with me. You know? Yeah. yeah. I've said with the chat at the time, I don't think he denied it, you know, but um, I no. wasn't sure what, what came of it. It's really interesting. I mean, being Blue are an iconic Scottish pop group, aren't they? And uh, yeah. yeah. get from Sly and the Family Stone to a Scottish pop group. That's right. Yeah, you it's, know, it's incredible, isn't it? Incredible. But that generation of bands, I think right across the board, Orange Juice, Deacon Blue, all the way up to the Bluebells. And they, they were great lovers of classic historical pop music. You could argue that the Scottish bands of that time were amongst the most literate generation in terms of their love affair with other forms of pop music, whether that was, you know, the Beatles or whether it was soul music or whether it was, you know, uh, any number of kind of music that they loved, you know, 
Crosby, Stills, Nash, they always seemed to be very in love with music and could talk quite articulately about it, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, that was my sweet spot. Um, so I was like 15, 16 when uh, postcards and stuff all started to come through and uh, yeah. I didn't, didn't know that, of course. And we keep going back to stuff that's a lot to do with this music. So there's been other yeah. years that we've had... Uh, we're talking. Uh, we're doing 1979 with David F. Ross mm. uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we were back talking about the shy lights and various other things. So yeah. we'll probably come back to that as we, yeah. as we rattle through your tunes, if you're okay. That was Family Fair. Your next selection, Stuart, is a classic soul ballad by The Temptations, uh, Just My Imagination. Why did you pick this one? Well, because I started with the year 1971, I wanted also to recognize that one of the great strands of the 70s was the continuity from the 1960s. So I wanted a song, and this one was in the charts in 1971, that still had all what made Motown the great label that it was throughout the 60s. From 64 onwards, there was no label in the world that had as many hits. And one of their great virtues was that they could pull together four or five uh, very gifted uh, African-American American singers from Detroit and, uh, and coach them in harmonies, in dance, in visual style and whatever. And if you listen to The Temptations and what they call the classic five, the great five singers of The Temptations, one of my favourite songs of all time, Just My Imagination. Yeah, and it was just the last record that Eddie Hendrix was on, the Go Solo? Yes, I think it was uh, Hendrix's... Uh, yeah, Eddie Kendrick's last Kendrick's song. My I think, I think, I think David Ruffin was still in it, but certainly Otis Williams and uh, the various other uh, singers that were famous with the with the Temptations were, were there as well. You know, because they, you say they, they were like the join because they had been there from the the kind of early to mid sixties. Um, yeah, yeah, they and, were they were continuity. Yeah. They were beginning to diversify they had um psychedelic shack and a number of kind of big albums in the early 70s that took them down the route that pioneers like slime the family stone had been pointing to but they still when they toured people still wanted to hear five great voices interplaying with each other phenomenal phenomenal band yeah and the song itself is, is really well written isn't it um, yeah absolutely know. stunning is that still they've got Norman Whitfield and Barrett Strong and stuff? I think they're still I uh, think involved. they're still producing yeah. them. Whitfield himself was very uh, imaginative. Again, one of the pioneers of psychedelic soul. But this one is more traditionally in their 60s style of vocal harmony. Yeah, and, and I don't know. I mean, they, they had some hits in the 70s, but, you know, did they, was, was this the, the kind of peak of them? Did they kind of coast a bit after this? Or do you think they still knocked it out or...? I, I look at, you know, they're, they're one of the greats and they could, I think they did travel and, and have, I think Otis himself still lives just outside the suburbs uh, of Detroit and he t still to this day tours with a band now. I think only he is the, from the original members. Um, but uh, nonetheless, uh, their music has, has stood the test of time. And I wanted to choose this one because A, it's a great song and B, it's a group of singers at their absolute height. Yeah, and it, it just sounds perfect really, doesn't it? There's there's yeah. kind of nothing wrong with it. Yeah. You know, the, the writing, the production, the singing, the backing, it's just, um, yeah. if you were going to 
if somebody was going to write a ballad and say you need mm-hmm. to get all these things right, you'd say, well, just listen to just this man out. Yeah. Yeah. There you go, mate. Knock it on. And this, they kind of they did keep knocking out great songs, didn't they? Because I think was Papa was a Rolling Stone would been after this. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. that was from really from their uh, psychedelic soul. So yeah. psychedelic shack was the album uh, that kind of helped transform that. And Norman Whitfield, who was a great, great uh, producer of that moment in music, uh, Undisputed Truth were one of his bands as well. Um, so, yeah, but I, I always think of this one as having half a foot in the 60s, although it's a record from 1971. It looks back to the to the glory years of Motown. And it was uh, it was huge. It was a number one, wasn't it, in the... Yep. The US um, in the Hot Hundred and the and the Army, so it, was, yeah. um, it, it doesn't get much bigger than that. Okay, well then um, we'll give it a, give it a play. So as I say, number one in the US. Uh, this is just my imagination by the Temptations. I'm not going to lie to you, Stuart. When uh, when Brian sent me your playlist, I thought I know all these songs. I was waiting for some classic that you know. That I could pretend I've discovered the next time I was DJing. <laughs> I'll save you a couple, Andrew, don't worry. Well, see, for a, when I, was, I went to Japan with White and uh, there was a journalist who gave me a tape at the time. And it had a song, this is back in 1994. And there was a tape of, and it had a song called Under the Influence of Love, the uh, Love Unlimited. And yeah. I went back and I was in London, went and bought it in vinyl. For five years, that was my end of song on a Saturday night. Everything used to cheer and stuff like that. And then one day some, some bastard came in with a CD of it. I can play that now. And yeah. then after that, the, the, but I, I've obviously that that culture of like having records that nobody else has got is not for an indie DJ, it's not as big a thing, but that was my one where nobody else has got this. I'm having yeah. my fun. Well that um, was um, that was the temptations with just my imagination. <laughs> and uh, you can hear Stuart and uh, McD are putting the world to rights here on, on DJing and uh, and all things uh, about fantastic music from, from that period and beyond. So uh, is there a, you know, could you do a, like an alternative playlist, Stuart, from... Oh, God, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, part of the reason I went with this is um, I got excited when I saw uh, the playlist, the, the top-selling American, African-American R&B and soul records of the year. And I thought, I could do my list from this, you know. I don't need to start digging around and looking at B-sides and uh, trying to impress Andrew or whatever. I felt very, very confident in myself. I'm not one of these northern soul boy that needs to throw in an absolute uh, obscurity just to show the length of my willy or as Gene might be saying. Well, maybe he talks about his northern soul roots, but he, he, he plays but the Beatles. He talks about his knob. Plays the Beatles. I was Abba. actually going. To, you know what? I was going to. I was going to play a record by uh, called Seven Day Lover" by James Fountain, and one of the reasons I, I, I really loved it as a record is that it's a, a moment of transformation in the history of the northern soul scene, where again the classic kind of '60s sound that would be uh, associated with the Motown beat and that was given way to uh, a kind of modern funk music. And James Fountain's record has both of those in the same track. It's a brilliant, brilliant record. But alas, it is not on the list. 
Maybe <laughs> for, <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe for another day. That's another um, yeah. another one Mideas nicked from you. So yeah, um, and sort of generally speaking, Stuart, just on that, uh, I, I know you've you've written about Northern Soul on numerous occasions, including the the book that you put out. So is there a kind of an easy way to define it to people that aren't aren't immersed in it? Yeah. I, yeah, how, how would you define Northern Soul to... to I would manage? define it as the uh, uh, rare up-tempo soul music that uh, has come to the UK, particularly the northern industrial cities of uh, England, so places like Manchester, Liverpool, Rochdale, uh, Barnsley, all places like that, uh, and became one of the great underground subcultures in Britain at the time when we were also dealing with the new romantics and the mod, uh, sorry, and the punks and things like that. So it's an underground subculture that has a love affair with rare soul music. Perfect. And and it does kind of go along that M62 corridor, doesn't it? In the kind of very much north so, of yeah, England. Yeah. So did it stretch to Hull? Was, um, was uh, that yeah, a thing? Oh, very much so, yeah. yeah. And um, uh, one of the reasons that I became immersed in it is a couple of quite big clubs in, in Hull. And uh, just along, before you get along the M62 to Hull, there's a small town called Selby, S-E-L-B-Y. Yep. And that had a number of really good Northern Soul clubs, particularly midweek. The big all-nighters tended to be in, you know, big old kind of halls. So like the Unity Hall in Wakefield or the Casino in um, which had once been the Empire Ballroom in Wigan uh, and then a converted cinema in Stoke-on-Trent called the Golden Torch. They were the big weekend all-nighters. But during the week, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, you were down to people uh, effectively running their own nights, not dissimilar to clubs, for example, that we've got here in Scotland, like we met, I mentioned the Pineapple Soul Club in, in Greenock. Mm-hmm. That would be something that guys would put on themselves knowing they weren't going to make huge amounts of profit, but that they were going to enjoy the night and also their friends yeah. would come. And, <laughs> and so one of the favourites uh, I used to go to uh, a lot was um, in uh, a small town called Todmorden, which is on the Lancashire-Yorkshire yeah. border. And it had a Ukrainian club. And many, many of the Northern Soul Clubs were really working men's clubs where they could get maybe the Thursday night and the committee would let them have the club for the night, you know. Uh, and so that was kind of why it all, all, all kind of got off. And there's a, really interestingly, I know it's a bit boring uh, to people that are not interested, but a lot of people will say to you, oh, do you put talcum powder on the floor when you're dancing? Which is a bit of a trope now of the Northern Soul scene. But it began in these social clubs in the 60s and 70s where maybe on a Thursday night, the club had wooden, sprung wooden floors, but for a whole two weeks, it had been lashed with beer, people spilling their pints and everything, and the floors were really, really sticky. And if you're trying to dance with leather-soled shoes on the sticky surface, it made it really difficult to glide. So people would put um, talcum powder down to smooth out the, the stickiness. That's how it started and then became this kind of trope that people now know about talcum powder on the floor. Yeah, the, the story that you get now is that it was because when the police arrived, you dropped your speed in the floor. The it, 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 it all mixed <laughs> in, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure there's about truth in both. 
Yeah. Okay, um, so we'll, we'll get back to the playlist. So we go from The Temptations to, I guess, maybe the sole artist of 71. So yeah. tell us about what's going on by Marvin Gaye. Well, it is, of course, the absolute pinnacle, the greatest uh, soul album of all time. Uh, and it's happening at a really, really interesting moment. I want to dwell a little bit on it because its history is hugely important in the story of soul music. Marvin Gaye, one of the great Motown singers, probably uh, up until then known really as a duet singer with Tammy Terrell and Kim Weston, prior to that really as a crooner. He was in, singing really in the style of Sinatra and whatever. And this was his breakthrough creative album that he produced himself. And what's going on, um, I had a really, really interesting uh, experience when I was a student in Washington, DC. There was, Marvin had died and the city of Washington, D.C., where he was born, had decided to put on a series of tribute nights uh, on behalf of his memory. And one of the biggest ones was his brother, Frankie Gay, singing in the style of Marvin Gay. So a brother singing about his dead brother. And Frankie Gay was a, a very, very, very talented um, singer in his own right. And I went into this uh, this uh, tribute night, and it was in Georgia Avenue in Washington, D.C., in this um, kind of restaurant club bar. And I, I knew enough about America by this time, I'd been there quite a few years as a student, that if you go down and sit in the tables and take table service, your drink's three times more expensive. But if you sit at the bar, you get it at bar prices. So I sat at the bar, and I, I remember just saying to the barman, could I have a Budweiser, please? And the guy brought the Bud up and that was it. And this woman, I looked over at the corner and I was the only white person in the club. There was another white woman over in the corner with long blonde brunette hair. And she just shouted over, are you Scottish? And I went, yeah. And she said, oh, so am I, I'm from Aberdeen. And she came round the bar, was hugging me and you know we were kissing each other and glad to see each other. It turned out it was Frankie Gay's wife. So Marvin Gaye's, Marvin Gaye's sister-in-law is from Aberdeen. Of course. And so she asked me to come and join the company. So I was backstage with them. I was sitting at the, their table at the front of the stage. A phenomenal performance. But back at the hotel later, Frankie Gay pulled out this whole body of kind of stuff that he'd brought along. It was really almost like a, a scrap album. And he had within the album letters that he had written to Marvin Gaye when he was uh, on active service in Vietnam. And some of them started with words like, brother, 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 I don't know what's going on across the land and all of this. And so the, 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 the lyrics, uh, a bit like you know Bowie would later do with the cut-ups, were often cut-ups of the conversations he was having in, in letter form with his brother. This is probably the greatest of all, and it's the story, it's a concept album. So again, we're changing soul music again. This concept album starts with a young African-American man returned from, from Vietnam, so it's the story of Frankie, his brother, who arrives in Detroit and is mesmerized by what he's seeing, the collapse of the city, the riots had just happened. There was a very, uh, you know, very, very brutal kind of white dominated fascist police force. And all of these subjects come up in the album. Uh, and it's the story of Frankie Gay as he wanders the streets of Detroit reflecting on life. Marvin Gaye's What's Going On.
Wow. And uh, am I right in saying initially Barry Gordy didn't want to release it or was uncomfortable about releasing it? Yeah, I think Barry Gordy was of the view that it was uh, too political. It was clearly uh, it was clearly an album that was at loggerheads with, you know, the Nixon administration, which had just come into effect, uh, was anti-war. And I think that Barry Gordy was still in his kind of classic Motown phase in his mind, which is that people want to buy records about love, teenage love, falling in and out of love. And this, he felt, was too heavy and was actually, he, he actually said, this will ruin your career, Marvin. Do not bring out this album. And, um, <laughs> and he did actually say, to be fair to him, he just said, if, it's, if anyone buys this, I'll have learned something um, to learn from your mistakes. And he admitted he was wrong when it went to number one, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And it, Gabe was coming off the back of, not not hard times, but I think sort of 70 hadn't been great for him because uh, he lost Tammy Terrell, didn't he, in 70? Yeah, yeah. She she had died in, uh, well, she'd actually collapsed in the October of 1967 and died two years later. So he was only a year out of coming out of yeah. quite a deep, deep depression about the loss of his collaborator and, and a woman that he... You know, they weren't in love in any in any kind of sense of kind of being together, but they were very, very good friends and very dear um, collaborators, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And am I right in saying, did he have a dabble at playing NFL football? Yeah, he did. Um, it, he, he's probably exaggerated it uh, <laughs> a wee bit more than you even, Brian. Um, basically... <laughs> He, he tried for the Detroit Lions um, right. and didn't make it. So it was like somebody going along for trials at Morton and not quite, <laughs> not quite making it, you know. But to be fair to him, if you listen closely to the opening, you hear guys kind of chatting away as mm. if they're in the street. Hey, man, what's going on? What's going on, man? They are the Detroit Lions. So he got his mates from the football team to come in to riff the top of the, the album. Wow, didn't know that. And is it also the first record that credited the Funk Brothers? You know, it could well have been. I would have to look back on that. But but they were, effectively, they were an invisible force throughout most of the 60s. Yeah. Hugely important to the uh, undercarriage of the Motown sound, to the, the way in which all, all of the great records that we now know and love, um, the Funk Brothers were essential to that. Uh, but I don't think that they were ever accredited force um, unless they had a writing credit. One of them maybe had a writing credit. Right. I doubt it very much. Um, but he was a great believer in the fact that this had a stronger kind of, I don't want to say communal thing, but there were lots and lots of people that contributed to the album. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, I, I know you've got another selection from the, the record as well, so we'll... We'll sort of double down on that when we come to that as well. But uh, but let's get this one on. So it's from the album of the same name, uh, which, um, as you say, was was probably the greatest soul album. And also, uh, Rolling Stone magazine, they voted it the greatest album ever. When they yeah, them, and that included all those things like um, all the stuff that Andrew really likes. <laughs> <laughs> all of them were packed into second, fourth, fifth place. You, you know, know, you know yeah. something... I still, whenever I see like Love getting into the top 10 or whatever, the Radiohead, you know, <laughs> the, 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 you have to put it in perspective that everything is of its time and they, these things disappear. They're not, yeah, they're they not, do. And Marvin Gaye doesn't. They're not, they're not only better that, they were ahead of the Beatles and stuff, which um, 
Yeah, and uh, you absolutely. Know, and as Andrew off. goes to bed tonight, crying <laughs> over his crying over his copy of Marky Moon, Martin <laughs> Gale be haunting. <laughs> Uh, it's funny we've not had seventy-seven yet, but um, I'm sure we may do it. Actually, this isn't really saying I don't like slow music. He's just really yeah. because I like this as well as slow music. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Absolutely, let's get some slow music on. So from the album, the same name. Um, this uh, is the genius of Marvin Gaye with what's going on. Marvin Gaye is what's going on. The Summer of Souls, fantastic as well, sure. Yeah, um, it's, it's, a, it's a great shout out there. And we'll be back to talking about Marvin again pretty soon. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, we're getting getting to sort of thread here that soul music was big in 71, especially in the US. Um, and, you know, the big sellers we talked about with um, Gene Knight and Marvin Gaye, obviously. I, I guess it's a quick question for you. Maybe it was off the time, Stuart, but when you look at the kind of best sellers list for 71 in America, you know, it's still predominantly white, traditional, um, you know, bands and singers. So yeah. what's, what's your take on that at the time? Because they were they were selling oodles of records, you know, some of these singles were some of the biggest selling records of the year, but top 10 is Carol King, uh, Paul McCartney, Carpenters, Janis Joplin, George Harrison. I mean, they're, they're great artists, but, but you know, there's not, there's not that sort of thread of soul coming through in that. Yeah. What, 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 I, I think what that reflects, Brian, is that, uh, mainstream radio at this stage was still largely segregated. You know, that you would have um, what they would call urban or R&B stations in the major urban centres in Chicago, Detroit, uh, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia. Uh, but the, the kind of mainstream charts, the rock A&R, uh, rock uh, radio stations tended to skew towards white music. So you had actually two separate charts, one of which was rock and pop, the other which was R&B. Now, in some respects, that reflected a segregation that gone right back to the 1930s when they had what was called the race charts, and the race charts were blues music and early R&B. So there always had been segregation, even the way in which record companies organised their business. They would have A&R men for the urban market and for the kind of rock and progressive market. And that tended to kind of underpin a segregation that existed probably right up until about the, the, the 1980s until, uh, you know, until what became African-American music, dance music, won the war basically, because in a period in the early 1980s, for the first time ever, every single record in the Billboard charts was by a black artist. That was at the height of hip hop and house music and all of that. Uh, and even if you look at it now, I think if you were to compare and contrast, hip hop sells, outsells traditional rock music by a matter of three to one, even now in the American charts. And even country with music. The, yeah, and, and country, country music. Is obviously yeah. big, with the biggest yeah. format. Hip hop outsells that now as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And probably has its germination from around about this period, I'm guessing. It, it does indeed, yeah. yeah. In fact, actually, we'll play a couple of records um, later on, which become so heavily sampled by um, by hip-hop artists that, you, you know, the kind of almost the undercarriage is there in 71. Yeah, and I guess just to make that point uh, before we move on, I, I think if I gave you a couple of guesses at what the biggest selling album in the US was in 1971... I think you might struggle to come up with it. 
uh, I bet you it was something really tacky uh, and it would have been comedy albums were quite big at the time <laughs> it's not but, but well some people may suggest it is it's actually the soundtrack to Jesus Christ Superstar all right, okay, there you go. So there uh, you go. Comedy uh, album. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. so we move from a classic soul solo artist back to the bands uh, with your selection, Have You Seen Her by the Shylights? So tell us yeah, about this I wanted, Yeah, I wanted to put this in for a different reason, Brian. Uh, I do put a bit of thought into this. It's not just scrolling the, the charts. <laughs> Have You Seen Her? And I want you to listen to it in a new way. Listen to it completely differently. Uh, and it's about the story of a man who has um, lost his lover and is having, uh, effectively, we would call it today, a mental health breakdown. And actually, what's fascinating about it is that the kind of macho soul singers that were redolent in that era, you know, Teddy Pendergast, all of these guys that were the big lovers, of, of so even Marvin Gaye himself, mm -hmm. there was always an element of kind of doubt uh, running through it. This record is the celebration of doubt. It's about a guy who's lost, it's quite, a, it, it, you know, I use a small F here, it's quite a feminist record in the sense that it says that, you know, the woman has walked out on him, she's not coming back, and he has to deal with the emotional pain of that, and he wanders around looking for this woman, and she's long gone. And I just think it's a really, really smart record because it kind of plays with your emotions and plays with the kind of male-female relationship in a really fascinating way. A great group out of Chicago, hence the Shy Lights, um, and Eugene Record, the lead singer, again, one of the great names of kind of, uh, of vocal uh, soul music. Uh, I just think it's a fantastic record, one of my favourite records of all time. And probably quite a brave record at the time, because as you say, it wasn't really the style of, of soul music at the time, that that kind of macho man, you know, men and women, and kind of old-fashioned in the vertical commas, uh, yeah. the, the way things were, and it's it's so different to that, isn't it? It's almost... Uh, yeah, it is, except that there's one continuity here, which is worth keeping in mind, is that a lot of these groups who were effectively came to their prominence in the late 60s were out touring at live shows, and their audience were predominantly a female audience. So to some extent, they were looking for music that spoke to their audience. And right. one thing that's really, really interesting is that Berry Gordy, uh, going back to Berry Gordy, the great uh, you know, Motown uh, thinker that owned the company and kind of shaped it, he used to say, women love nothing better than men on their knees pleading for forgiveness. And so many Motown records are about men pleading to get women back or men desperate to admit they were wrong and whatever. And he says, you go and play these songs to a female audience, they love them. And I think that that is a con continuation of that subculture of songs that's actually intended to appeal to a female listenership. Okay. That's interesting. Well, um, I'll certainly we'll, we'll listen to that again in, in that context. Uh, and they, they, they remained fairly relevant. We had, uh, when Graham Skinner was a guest, Stuart, uh, yeah. Graham chose 1974 and he chose Homely Girl um, by the Charlottes in 74. And then I yeah. mentioned David F. Ross was on uh, picking 79. And we get into a whole chat about The Jam, who's probably David's favourite band, I guess. Yeah. And myself and me, D were saying that 
our introduction to the Shylights was the jam covering stoned out of my mind. Yeah. And and it's kind of, you seem to keep going back to these these classic songs of the time. Yeah. Even when yeah. the musical genre's different, yeah. they, they still sort of bring you back to the connection, um, which is quite fascinating if you think about how music's changed from, say, 70 to 79. Yeah. It's almost yeah. unrecognisable, but you still yeah. have that, that thread sort of running back through it again. And I, I also- think that there's, uh, Brian, I think there's, not, not that we can do it tonight, but there's definitely a brilliant podcast. You, you guys do it by the year and celebrating a year uh, through the eyes of your guests. But there's definitely a great podcast, podcast to be done just simply called Homage, people paying homage to, in other words, cover versions, people who've used the, 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 the texture, the tone, the timbre of, of a great musician of the past. So if you look at... Um, uh, if you look at Paul Weller, one of Paul Weller's great gifts is his love affair with the music of the past, whether that music was kind of classic soul or crooners or whatever. You know, uh, uh, Paul really, really knows his music. If you listen to somebody like Bobby, Bobby Hodgkins of the Bluebells, he is a great, great pioneer of what I would call perfect pop music. Mm-hmm. He just, you know, he knows how to write great pop records. Uh, and in lots of ways, part of his mind is still in the 60s, you know. Um, and I think that there's so much to be done about the things that people loved and how it influenced their music. It would be led, I think, either by super fans or by the musicians themselves. So he sat down and said to Ricky Ross, play us five records that you have always wanted to pay homage to. What are they and why, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and uh, I'm scribbling some notes here because myself and the we have got some ideas for a couple of other ones, kind of yeah. longer term, including yeah. something. Speaking of that, that release where they covered, was it like did they do an album of this? But they did. Um, what do you get if you fall in love? Yeah, did they did they the back and David DP, I think. Yeah, yeah, they did indeed. And and I, I didn't know you were going to mention that, sure. But um, just while you're on that subject, then I was going to ask you if you've heard the cover version of Have You Seen Her by MC Hammer? I have, yes, I have, yeah. It doesn't really work for me in the same way. Um, and I think it was at the period of time when it was just literally raping almost every great record in the history of African-American music. But nonetheless, we'll let it pass. Yeah, it may not make the homage. Um, no, it for- would not. <laughs> Okay, then, so let's hear this one. From the album, for God's sake, give more power to the people. Uh, this is the Shy Lights with Have You Seen Her. That was the, the Shy Lights with Have You Seen Her. So from a big song in 71 to a big song from a big film in 71. So you've chosen Isaac Hayes and the theme from Shaft as your next selection, shoot. Yes, I have. And the rationale behind that was one of the big changes that had come about for African-American artists was the development of soundtracks. Now, um, one of the early pioneers of this, there was a, uh, a really, really good film called Uptight that came out in the late 1960s and they'd hired Booker T and the MGs from Shaft to do the soundtrack. And um, that was one of the influences that led to uh, a group of young producers imagining uh, what became Superfly, the mm-hmm. Curtis Mayfield, uh, the, well, the album which Curtis Mayfield does the phenomenal soundtrack to. 
Yep. Uh, it's quite interesting, Superfly, because uh, Curtis's son actually says it, and I quoted it, I think, in my Harlem book, was that, you know, the soundtrack of Superfly is what gives the film its moral kind of, you know, its moral credibility. Because actually, if you just look at the images, it's the same old criminal guy, you know, sells drugs, makes it rich. There's no great kind of moral complexity in it until you listen to the music and the words, particularly uh, Freddy's Dead, which is the requiem for one of the kind of criminals within the film. And what it did is it opened up in the independent film world the possibility that young uh, African-American artists who up until then had never been part of the Hollywood industry, had never been part of the soundtrack industry, were given an opportunity to write screenplays. Um, Bobby Womack wrote the famous Across 110th Street. Yeah. And the one I've chosen, because it's from 1971, and those yeah. are the rules, is. Uh, is the theme from Shaft by Isaac Hayes. Yeah, and, and great song from a great film as well, would you? Yes, oh, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and there uh, a couple of kind of firsts as well. You talked about Superfly, which was um, just just after this, wasn't it? But yeah, I think it was a double album when it came out, and yes. it was the first, so it was first major R and B double album to yeah be released. So you could see that kind of you know things stretching again, things changing and evolving, not just knocking out you know two and a half minute pop singles, pop songs. Yeah, and interestingly enough, Brian, when when you mentioned that the double album. It was very, very, very uncommon for African-American artists to have a gatefold sleeve, you know, an album that opened up in the middle. That was seen as something that rock music did. It wasn't yeah. something that soul did. So yeah. all of these kind of sometimes quite subtle changes were coming in in 1971 uh, uh, as well. Uh, but I love uh, the theme from Shaft because it's one of those um, records that stood the test of time. Again, if you put it on in a club now, People are up right away. They recognise it. They know it. They don't always know what it's called, but they get it. You know. Yeah, I agree. I have got this. Uh, I've got this image. In my, I agree with all of that, but I have an image in my head of Alan Partridge singing it as well. Yeah, he, yeah. He sings it when he's staying in his hotel, travel lodge somewhere. And he uh, does. Yeah, the, yeah. It's in the near, absolute, Yeah, he's near Norwich, I think, somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and he does. Yeah, and I think the set the, the second major R&B album that, that was um, a double album as well was also Isaac Hayes because he released Black Moses, didn't he? He did, yeah. Uh, yeah. Same that year. was actually, for much of his later life, that was his nickname, Black Moses. He was yeah. seen as as this kind of classic kind of figure within the Memphis music sound. But he'd been a very successful co-writer with David Porter at Stax Records, certainly going way back into the 67 era. So this was him coming out as an individual artist in his own right, you know, great, yeah. great, great musician. Yeah, know. absolutely. And and it got the recognition as well. So obviously it was a, it was a sort of big iconic film at the time, but this actually, I think, won the best original song at the next year's Oscars, the 72 Oscars. Yeah. And it was the first African-American to, to sort of break through that and yeah. win the best song rather than yeah. some of the, the stuff that you would normally get. Um, well, Brian, if you want to uh, search Google Images, put all of what you've just said into Google Images and have him and put in the words coming home to Memphis Airport. And it's like uh, it's like a big, big sports uh, 
team have returned with the trophy. They're, I mean, we're talking thousands deep at the airport. Right. And, uh, wow. and uh, <laughs> it's just brilliant. Isaac Hayes is there with his mum, right? And his <laughs> mum's holding the trophy aloft because the idea, I mean, she was massively proud that her son, who is effectively from a, a ghetto in, in North Memphis, had actually won this uh well, you know, I don't think anybody, any black kid had won no. uh, the Oscar in that way before for a musical soundtrack. So unbelievable. You know? Yeah. And and that I guess that cultural influence that then kicks on from that. So it's not just about yeah. the guys that like music. It's about the people who live there and the families and the friends. And you get that ripple yeah. effect, I guess. Yeah. 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 Amazing, mate. And we forget, you know, the... We're talking about artists that lived in communities the way that we've all lived in a community. And the area that um, where Isaac went to school, it was in North Memphis, where just about everybody, and I mean just about everybody, worked in the Firestone Tire Factory. Yep. So it was a very urban, industrial working class upbringing. And here was this guy winning the Oscar and bringing it home. I mean, quite a triumphant moment in his life and in the life of his town as well. Yeah, absolutely. And would that be, what would our equivalent, is there an equivalent for us? Is that like, I don't know, the old shipyards and stuff in the Yeah, the I guess maybe, I wonder if somebody like Billy Connolly had won an Oscar or something like that. Right. It would have a wee bit of that feel about it, yeah. Returning home to your origins and roots, you know. Yeah. And having taken your mum out there to pick up the gear. <laughs> <laughs> All bailing down to the Sarahid. Or, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Uh, well, let's get this one on then because it's a brilliant song. So, from the film Shaft, released in August August seventy one, this is the number one theme tune by Isaac Hayes. Sure, I was going to I was going to ask you about your um, your poster behind you. I should have asked you when the Shylights were on. I made a note on it and then I forgot. Oh, what is it? Is it uh, Shylights? Shylights and Killing the Gang and stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're all uh, originals. There's another one up there and one, I've got five or six upstairs. And when I was a student in the States, whenever uh, these bands were playing, there was a place called Constitution Hall in Washington, DC. And they would they would literally staple them onto trees and things like that, fly posting equivalent. Yeah. And I would go out at night. Now, why I never got arrested. I had my, my college bag, but in it I'd put a wrench hammer a screwdriver. You needed a screwdriver to get under the staples and flick them out. And then I would walk away with a poster. And they're hard cardboard, so you couldn't roll them up. You had to take them. And I ended up going to um, uh, a shop and buying this giant cheap suitcase that they lay in the bottom of. And then I put books on top of them and records in the middle of the books and then some old clothes. And then that was me ready to come home, you know. But they're, they're, they're very collectible now. I mean, on the you know, the kind of crate digger scene or the uh, wax poetic scene, you're probably about four or five hundred quid for the posters now, you know. Oh. Okay. I don't don't be telling the people at Dennis than that. <laughs> <laughs> or my son, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Around the corner. Um that was the theme from Shaft by Isaac Hayes. Um, so we're back to Marvin Gaye again next with his song Mercy Mercy Me. Uh, brackets the Yeah, from from the What's Going On album. Yep. But um, the reason that I chose this one, Brian, was that I was putting the list together um, during COP26. And okay. 
my wife uh, was working on COP26 doing a, a project with Glasgow City Council about women that were coming uh, to, to COP26. It was for schoolgirls across the whole of the Glasgow and Strathclyde region. And uh, it was quite interesting. She'd asked me soul records that you could play with in the context of COP. Um, and of course, the one that struck me as being the most obvious was Mercy, Mercy Me, the ecology, because it's the first time ever I can remember a soul record ever dealing with the environment as a subject. Mm. You know, now clearly um, for Marvin Gaye, that was one of a bundle of subjects that feature in the album, uh, poverty, police brutality, the war in Vietnam. But the one that tends not to get mentioned as much is ecology and the mm. and the eco movement. Uh, so I wanted to just register that because it was 1971 and a very very early pioneer of music that talked about that particular social issue. And can you think of any other certainly any bigger not, artist? That- not 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 as far back as that in the uh, in the history of soul music. Uh, I'm guess there's got to be. Uh, there's got to be a number of different kind of things that were coming out the counterculture and the hippie bands and the kind of rock bands of the time. There's bound to be, but I don't know that subject as well. I certainly know that from Marvin Gaye's point of view, uh, this this would be one of the ones. And then, of course, when uh, the Stevie Wonder explodes um, and his career really, really motors in the early 70s, he begins to develop that theme a lot more. Um, songs in the Key of Life and various yeah. other kind of um, albums that he brought out. But this, for me, is one of the early ones. And so as a pioneer of the ecology movement uh, and brought to my notice by COP26 in Glasgow, Marvin Gaye, Mercy, Mercy Me. Perfect. Selection 7 from Stuart, receives number 4 on the Hot 100, number 1 in the R&B singles charts in the US. This is Mercy Mercy Me by Marvin Gaye. Yeah, and that, that was um, that was Marvin Gaye with Mercy Mercy Me, and um, Stuart was just saying there as we had that on, what a, a big fan he is of the Robert Palmer cover. So we'll, um, we'll, we'll find that and put that one on, and uh, for the purpose of the audio listeners, Stuart's just yeah. giving his thumbs up to that. So, uh, uh, yeah, it was similar to the gesture that the guy used to do when he had uh, Nescafe coffee beans. <laughs> <in his hand. laughs> oh, fantastic! Okay, moving on swiftly, change of pace. Uh, we are now choosing the Godfather of Soul, James Brown, and make it funky. I love James Brown, although I don't like him as a personality. I love his music. And one of the reasons why I thought Make It Funky deserved to be in this list of great records from 1971 was you can feel in it the very, very origins of hip-hop. Hip-hop is beginning, uh, the last last paragraph, the last chapter of Harlem 69, my book, talks about how the roots of hip-hop were, uh, were planted in that year, in that community. And songs like this or tracks like this became the kind of virtually the kind of bedrock of what great sampling became and how hip hop uh, derived its kind of beats and its mixtapes and all of that. Uh, so it's a good record in its own life, but it's probably been sampled about 8,000 times. James Brown, Make It Funky. 
Where would you say his career was in 71? Because obviously he'd been iconic from most of the 60s, I'm guessing, but was it? Yeah. Where was he? he was the, by, by his admission, he was the hardest working man in showbiz. He was touring all the time. He had just left. Um, a, he was involved with King Records in Cincinnati, who had gone into uh, liquidation and receivership. And there was lots of kind of court cases about who owned what within his back catalogue. And he started to do two things cleverly, one of which was he signed uh, a major, major deal with Poly Polydor, but also as a producer set up his own indie label, People Records. Uh, and that's where he kind of used quite a lot of his backing band to bring out uh, records mm -hmm. that he produced or wrote or had copyright in. Um, he was also uh, stupidly, as it, as it turned out, turning his back on an, a growing uh, tax problem that he had, which right. crippled quite a bit of the latter part of his life. I mean, he owned, owed the inland revenue at this time, maybe about two million US dollars, but by literally, you know, ripping up the letters and stuffing them in the, in, in the uh, garbage can, it just grew and grew as a problem. Uh, and he wrote to three different presidents to, uh, Richard Nixon, Jimmy Carter, and ultimately just before his death to Bill Clinton, seeking a presidential pardon for his uh, tax problems. You know, a trick I've tried myself a few times. But, you know. <laughs> but uh, this is where he was at this time. But he would always be touring. I mean, he, I mean, his his itinerary of tours is extraordinary, exhausting, incredible. And although I don't like him very much as a human being. I have to nod to his ability to work his way uh, through his career. Yeah, and did, did they have a bit of a backlash from initially supporting Nixon? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, Brian, because I know your listeners will be excited to know that my next book is called Hey America, Black Music and the White House. And it's the story of black music's interrelationship with the White House and the various presidents from uh, from literally from John F. Kennedy uh, to Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Um, but it follows all of the kind of big moments in American history where African-American music is either the soundtrack to it or interfaces with it. And, and yes, he, um, without giving away too much of the story, because I'm sure it will end up getting made into uh, a major documentary in America, James Brown goes to meet Richard Nixon in, in the White House, uh, ostensibly uh, to support a campaign that Nixon had just uh, um, launched, which was the campaign for black capitalism. The idea was that capitalism was fine and all that needed to happen was not spending money on poverty programs, but rather making African-American communities richer by rich people, you know, the usual kind yeah, of, yeah. The, money will, the money will rise you, uh, uh, to the top nonsense. Um, and so that campaign, uh, James Brown became involved in it. So he went uh, to meet Nixon. And what's very, very interesting about it is three or four days before James Brown arrives in the White House, Nixon had fitted under his uh, desk a Sony tape recorder and decided that he was going to record his meetings. And it was that tape recorder 
and those recordings that became the basis of the Watergate scandal, which ultimately, of course, led to his impeachment. So, uh, so the, the chapter tells the whole story, James Brown's life, why he's there, what the black capitalist movement was, and why the Sony recorder tricks uh, Richard Nixon into uh, his own impeachment. So the book will be out uh, probably for ne- uh, probably about for Christmas. Uh, I've finished it, I'm just finishing it this week uh, and send it to the publisher early next week. Um, so it's good. Good. I didn't know that, so thanks for that, Sure, That's really interesting. I'm sure the book will be great. Are you ever tempted to do the audio yourself on the, the audio I've books? got a young man who, fucking hell, I mean, a, a German company was sorting out the audio, yeah. and there's a young African-American man from just outside New York, and the German company hadn't paid him. I guess a call one night, and the guy said, can you help me? And I said, well, yeah, what was it you need me to do? I thought he was going to say, oh, my daughter's coming to Glasgow University or something like that. He says, I'm not being paid. So I had to go <laughs> back and chase up my publisher, get my publisher to chase up the yeah. company they had devolved the audio rights to. Uh, but he's got a lovely, beautiful, mm. uh, rich voice. He's an African-American man and he's an actor. And he's done all of them thus far. And I just think that his voice travels better than mine. I think I'm good on the road if I'm doing a kind of author's night or something like that. But if somebody's going to pay money for it, they want to hear the real gear, don't they? You know. Yeah, I guess. It's a bit like James Brown live in James Brown the studio. You know, uh, like, Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You want to hear the real thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he did a, a live version, talk about him live and treading the board. So I think he did a live at the Apollo record in 71. Yeah. Um, and yeah. there's a 13-minute version of this on that, which is just, it's just a die for. He absolutely nails it. Yeah. Um, yeah, brilliant. And the studio version is good. a genius. Yeah, he yeah. is a genius. You're absolutely right. Okay, let's listen to a bit of genius then. So, um, live version does uh, come in at about 13 minutes. What we maybe do is might stick that on the playlist um, when we come on, but uh, we'll stick on the single version uh, just now, which is Make It Funky by James Brown. So, what was the. Did any of the American presidents give him a, an answer like, I'm a fan, but I can't do this? Was there any? Uh, G, uh, Jimmy Carter uh, kind of said that, uh, and uh, right. <laughs> Bill Clinton just ignored them. Uh, well, in so, Donald, yeah. in Donald Trump's campaign against Hillary Clinton, I turned the radio one day and he was, playing, he was reading the words to the snake out. He was going, and you, you know, the, the, the yeah, song yeah. was written by Al Unbelievable. You know, it sums up Hillary Clinton. Was, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, the, the, the joke the joke is it wasn't written by Al Wilson. It was written by a, a, a musician called Adele Brown, who was a Chicago revolutionary activist, and Al Wilson had covered it. Now, Adele Brown's right. daughter, I interviewed her for the book about this, this particular uh, subject we're talking about, and she was her father had passed away, and she was going apeshit saying... You know, he's been sent cease and desist orders. He must never, ever quote from the record ever again. He doesn't have the right to do it. My father would be turning in his grave. And, you know, so it was extraordinary, you know, extraordinary. So that's mentioned, that's there in a whole uh, list of, or a whole chapter of various artists that told Donald Trump to fucking take one, you know. (laughs) Is that the chapter title? 
Oh. Aye, I know, pretty close, John. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Okay, James Brown there with Make It Funky. So from James Brown to Curtis Mayfield, sure. So you have nominated... Yeah, I, I chose the Curtis Mayfield one uh, because, you know, it's a great song. Um, and also, to some extent, uh, well, you know, I mentioned earlier about why the, the Chai Lights had this kind of unintentional feminism within the song. What I loved about this is Curtis Mayfield... Um, he, he, he's a Chicago singer with a really uh, kind of reedy, uh, high voice, lovely, talented man. Um, but the music that he had grown up with, gospel music, uh, he was a contemporary of Sam Cooke's. They were all from uh, the Chicago gospel scene. Uh, he was brought up in a very deeply Christian environment. And this song starts to experiment as a number of um, uh, songs do at the time the dramatics um, brought out a, a, a song about the devil. And this one is actually questioning uh, the whole idea about uh, our behavior as human beings. And the title says, oh, if there's a hell below, we're all going to go. It's a great title. It's an amazing it's title. it's probably true. Um, and an amazing album as well. I think um, yeah. you talk about, you know, sort of groundbreaking records. Um, I think it may have come up in one of our other chats where one of the guys reviewing it uh, retrospectively as a sort of 70s review said that yeah. it was the Sgt. Pepper's album of 70s soul. Yeah. And I think, you know, he was kind of trying to book, you know, bookmark it to have that influence of so many other yeah. um, genres going forward. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of truth in that, you know. Yeah. I'm glad I said it. <laughs> <laughs> It's probably your American name, Stuart. Yeah. 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 So it's under Bruce Eder, but that's probably a pseudonym when you're yeah. in those Washington bars and, and stuff. So. Indeed, indeed, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so from the album, Curtis, this is If There's a Hell Below, We're All Going to Die. I love this album. I mean, I, I, I was saying that's earlier great. on, I'm, I, you know, I'm not disclosing secrets here. I, I really like soul music, but, you know, I, I would be more generally rock and pop as a, as a yeah. rule. But there are certain records that just, I mean, I, I heard this when I was quite young and uh, yeah. it, it just stayed with me. It's an amazing record. Yeah, uh, it's brilliant. Uh, yeah. Everything about it. Fantastic. That was um, that was Curtis Mayfield. And we moved from a soul icon to another soul icon. So your next song, Stuart, is If You Really Love Me by Stevie Wonder. Yeah, uh, what a great artist this guy is. And in lots of ways, I think for many reasons, uh, because he began at Motown as a kind of child genius. I never really took Stevie Wonder hugely serious. I liked him, you know, uh, but in the mix of people like Marvin Gaye and The Temptations and that, I always found him to be a bit so what mm. until the early 1970s. It's kind of interesting, actually. Um, there's a great documentary to be done on this, but when synthesizers, uh, Roland synthesizers first came out, they were so obscure that they were they were on a waiting list. At Motown, Barry Gordy was obsessed with instrumentation and Stevie Wonder were desperate to get very high on the waiting list for the first electronic synthesizer. The other person who was high on the list was uh, Mickey Dolan's of the Monkees. Okay. And the two, the two of them together had thrown money at getting the first. And of course, when you start to hear Stevie Wonder, who was already an extremely gifted keyboardist anyway on the piano, 
when he starts to uh, come up with electronic uh, synthesized um, instrumentation, I think his career really takes off in a different a different direction. Um, uh, and is that because so of the like is, that because, is that because of the sound, Stuart, or why do you well, think, I think that there's is? a mix a mixture of the sounds and like songs in the key of life? But maybe the one that sticks out the most is uh, the concept album Inner Visions, where he's actually tying musical creativity to his blindness, and that's actually for an artist an exceptionally challenging and and quite fascinating. Uh, way of going about your, your creativity. He had come over 65, maybe, to the UK, and they were on a European tour, which took them also to Paris. And Stevie Wonder, for the first time in his life, sat at the desk of Louis Braille, the, the great uh, Parisian uh, 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 blind pioneer of the Braille system. Stevie himself was in the American system, but he, he was very competent in Braille as well. And there's a great photograph of him sitting at Louis Braille's old school desk at a museum in Paris. And he's kind of like, it's like he's got this kind of odd looking typewriter. And if you only glance at it, you think he's playing a piano, he's playing an instrument. This is not to do with being blind, this is some device he's discovered. And he was really, really good at that. He was always looking for um, devices. And with Stevie Wonder, you know, you would never know what was coming next. I mean, mm. he, he was, um, for example, people in Scotland will kind of laugh at this, but he was, um, he was a, a, one of the uh, best purveyors of the spoons I've ever heard. I interviewed <laughs> him, I, I interviewed him uh, for the NME when I was, uh, I don't know, uh, be sometime in the 80s. And I'd said to him, oh, you know, I read a book where your mum said you would always be doing percussion and you were good at the spoons. I said, I used to do the spoons when I was a kid. And he picked up these two teaspoons from a tray and started to do the wee rattling. He was brilliant at it. And, you know, ripped you apart as well. So one of the things he did to me was um, he, he had hidden a, a big biro down the side of a cushion. But I, I was sitting on the settee opposite him. There was... Uh, food and, and trays out in front of us. And he said to me, oh, I just want to make a note of that. I must have said something. He said, I just want to make a note of that. Could you hand me the pen, please? And I'm looking around saying, uh, sorry, the pen. He says, the one right next to you at the cushion, are you blind, man? And he had planted the, he had planted the pen down the side of the cushion to kind of, <laughs> to, 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 to take me up. And, you know, just a really, really bright guy. Big, big practical joker. One of the great practical jokers of all time. I mean, we're at the level here now of things like the guy, the guy that would put the bucket of water up on top of a door. You know, he's that kind of uh, character, larger yeah. than life. Um, wow. And it, I, I got a, a great interview with him because we talked a lot about a gentleman called Ted Hull. Now, Ted Hull is probably one of the most travelled and well-toured um uh, Motown characters of them all. Uh, when Stevie uh, signed for Motown, he was only 11, 10 or 11 year old. And uh, he was at the Lansing Institute for the Blind, which is um, Michigan's top blind school. Uh, and he wasn't allowed to sign contracts or travel because he was under the age of consent. His mother had to consent to sign his contracts. And one of the contractual stipulations by the Lansing Institute of the Blind was that um, he had to continue his 
his work, his schoolwork, uh, and therefore he would tour with his tutor, who was a blind tutor, Ted Hull, and he would periodically see Ted Hull bringing him on stage, then they'd go off stage and he'd have to be doing his, his homework effectively. And it, it's just a really fascinating idea that a young man who's entirely blind uh, grows, goes around the world with his blind tutor and becomes an international superstar. I mean, you know, yeah. what's yeah, not to like about that, you know? Yeah. And I think this was, uh, I think it was his 13th album um, and he was 21, I think, in 71. So, yeah. you yeah. know, he'd been prolific. It was also, this was the last album from his original Motown contract. contract so he then yeah. he kind of renegotiated, didn't he? And I think he got a lot of yeah. creativity and freedom and stuff from the yeah. future records, yeah. which probably helped him with that, that sort of ideas and flexing and stretching and stuff that he'd done. Yeah, um, and bear in mind that this was just the immediate aftermath of the fight that Barry Gordy had had with Marvin Gaye yeah. about precisely that, about musical creativity and breaking the breaking the kind of Motown style. And uh, it was to Stevie's benefit that he could follow in those footsteps and bring out probably three of the great soul albums of all time, with Inner Visions, uh, Talking Book, uh, Songs in the Key of Life. I mean, just great stuff, you know. Landmark artist of the time, and if you really love me, also kind of hints back at the great sixties songs as well. Yeah, it does, and I, I think he's still the only guy that won three Grammys in a row for the Is three records. Right? Yeah. yeah, for those three records, mm. um, for yeah. for all the reasons that you've you've just stated, Stuart. So, yeah, um, we'll we'll get it on here. So. Let's give one, this one a spin from the album where I'm coming from. This is If You Really Love Me by Stevie Wonder. My my Stevie Wonder career is exactly the same as yours. That yeah. almost kind of, almost parked him a little bit. Yeah. Um, for all the, the reasons you say, there's nothing wrong with him, but it just, he always seemed to be kind of second tier. Tier, yeah. And then two or three albums, particularly, um, I think it was Talking Book first, I think, and then yeah. uh, then the others, but um, amazing. Incredible. I mean, he yeah. probably didn't need that synthesizer if he just played the spoons. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> saved a fortune, wouldn't he? Yeah. Indeed, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, a great story about George Clinton, um, who George Clinton and the Parliament Funkadelic Acts, remember there was... Uh, Bootzilla, The Brides of Funkenstein, there was, uh, the, the, what did they have, Chocolate City? There was Parliament, Parley of Funkadelic Mint. I mean, they had numerous bands that they toured under. And there was a great article I was reading about uh, George Clinton that he'd been in trouble with his record company. They said, George, you're going to have to stick with us. You're exclusive to us. And you can't just go away and record for other record companies. You're in breach of contract. And he was under serious pressure from the record company. And he was at home one night and he read an article in some kind of supermarket magazine about uh, a woman that had multiple personality disorder. Right? <laughs> so George has this bold idea and goes back to the record company and said, I know you're worried about this, but I've signed an exclusive deal with you and I will never breach it. But there are five people in my personality and they're off doing deals all over town. I can't control them. <laughs> <in that. laughs> and he used multiple personality disorder to argue for why he had about 15 different contracts. An amazing musician. I mean, 
off the scale, still alive to this day and yeah. one of the great, great musical eccentrics of all time. I mean, you know what? They go on. I'm sorry, but, you know, they go on, all these punk guys that go on about the fall and all of that. You're thinking, George Clinton, eccentrics. <laughs> Fucking the fall couldn't live with them. <laughs> <laughs> So before um, before the George Clinton chat there, we had Stevie Wonder uh, with If You Really Love Me. And as Stuart said, the, he's sort of 70s records from here to, I guess, Songs of the Key of Life, I guess, Stuart, would be as yeah, good as Yeah, you're looking you at get. probably, yeah, absolutely. And maybe the greatest burst of creativity in uh, soul music history, you know. Absolutely. So back to the female singers for our next artist. And you've chosen Betty Wright. Yeah, and when we, Betty Wright's, Betty Wright, clean-up woman. Now, a number of different reasons for this. One of which was she was a great singer in her own right and from a very good musical family from the city of Miami, which tends to get slightly overlooked in the history of soul music, dwarfed, obviously, by Detroit, Chicago, Washington, D.C. And uh, I love the... Uh, I love the Miami sound. It's quite kind of... There, there's a kind of funkiness to it I, I really like. But interestingly about Betty Wright, she brought out a, a, a phenomenal album, probably around 74, 75, so just after Clean Up Woman was, was a hit. And she toured the UK, and she's one of the very small number of artists that performed live at the Wigan Casino, the famous Northern okay. solo nighter. She was on stage there. Now, why small number live music wasn't what it was about it was really about the rare records and the the the, the big hits of the northern soul era um so her performance uh, when she had a number of songs that were being played in the club shura shura love don't grow in a love tree a number of great great records uh but clean up woman is interesting for different reasons the uh women soul singers at this time were starting to kind of do um, a whole set of kind of rival and what they often referred to as bitch records where they would have a go at each other. Mm -hmm. And this is a warning record. The cleanup woman or the woman that's the cleaner in the house is going to steal your man. And often it was the secretary or the, 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 the neighbor or something like that. And there's this kind of subgenre of, great female soul singers that kind of warned warned her, uh, about the kind of war in the bedrooms and things like that. I mean, just really, really interesting. Not written about nearly as, as much as it should, but I like this record and I love Betty Wright. And so I wanted her to be in here in the 1971 playlist with Clean Up Women. It's a, it's a perfect song for 71. I, I didn't know the song, I know it now, but I, I didn't know the song yeah. from, from the time. The, the first I heard of this, Stuart, was um, I think she sued, uh, what was the band called? Colour Me Bad. You know that song, I Want to Set yeah. You Up? Um, yeah. Which I knew from like the early 90s. And I think she sued for some sort of copyright on that. And uh, she won that and she got a share of royalties and stuff. And, and I that was when I heard the song. I didn't I didn't know the song at the time. Um. So, yeah, so I think I think when you go back and hear it now, it, it does sound very kind of 1971. It sounds quite big and quite yeah. rich, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you can it, see that it's kind of easy to sample. Yeah, absolutely. And sold uh, two million copies again. So yeah, these records are huge. Absolutely yeah. huge. A fantastic song. Okay, so we'll get this one on. This is a Clean Up Woman by Betty Wright. 
love a song. I, 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 this totally passed me by until I would have been I'd have been late twenties uh, before I heard this. Brilliant. What what, what happened to her, Stuart? Did she just keep going and gigging? Yeah, she, and, yeah, yeah, and and kind of like one of these that just kind of drifted away. Right. I think she returned to her family gospel group. And I think she's probably passed away now. I couldn't be certain about that. Um, I'm not sure, mate. Oh, yeah, to, last year, actually, 2020. Yeah, yeah last year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, that's um, it's a, it's a bit of education for me, that one. Definitely. And uh, what about the, is it Harry Stone, is it? I was scribbling some notes down. So he was, yeah. he was kind of fairly influential, wasn't he, as a kind of... Um, yeah, he label. was. Henry Stone owned the labels. He was he was a distributor who was connected to Atlantic Records in in uh, New York and actually was their local Southern distributor. But uh, Henry also owned TK Records and Stone Records and that. He was your classic kind of uh, soul music entrepreneur. He looked a little bit like um, he look, looked a little bit like um, a. Captain Birdseye, that big kind of grey beard, and but he, you know, he's actually got a really, really good blog just now. I follow him on Twitter, and he's still alive, still recommending records from Miami, still talking about characters from the sixties and why records were the way they were. And um, you know, he owned TK Records, and it was just one of the great kind of undiscovered soul labels. Brought out an awful lot of. Um, brought out an awful lot of hits. Probably the one that most people would remember. It's not a record I particularly warm to, uh, but one of his, um, he, at the front of his warehouse, um, he had a young man with, uh, who worked at the warehouse. He was literally the doorman, the, the warehouse attendant, and he had a local rock band in Miami, and they brought out Play That Funky Music White Boy, you know, mm -hmm. Play it till you die. I can't remember the name of them now. Um, play that funky uh, music, white boy. Oh, um, yeah. Indeed, who sang that? Boogie and play that funky music till you die. Do -do. All right. It a, yeah, it was a big, big record of the time. Um, but interestingly enough, by the time 76, 77 came around, um, and Laker Airlines existed, the first generation of us started to go over to America, searching, crate digging and searching for rare or uh, obscure soul music. And I was one of a number of guys that would go over. I was a student over there as well. And there was a whole thing where this guy who, who play that funky music, white boy, who the hell? Wild Cherry. Wild Cherry, right? So the lead singer of Wild Cherry, um, he would uh, be working in the warehouse and every time he went into their warehouse in Miami, he would say the same thing. We don't have the twans. Now the twans, I can see him again, is to this day, one of the rarest Northern soul records of all time. And it was a, a record on Miami label out of, their, out of their back catalog, but they probably pressed up like 800 copies and they'd all been sold or, or, or disappeared or, gone into radio stations and, and just simply vanished into history. But this guy was so sick of British people coming in asking for this record that he used to just know you as soon as you walked in the door. Because it was very unusual for 
white guys to walk into this record store, which is predominantly black owned, although he himself was the funky white boy at the at the door. So for those that love Wild Cherry, I know it's popular in the clubs. Um, there's a story about the guy working the doors. Yeah, absolutely. And it was very popular and still is. Um, as as was um, Betty Wright and Clean It Women. So following on yeah. from that, Stuart, you have um, went for Frida Payne with the song Bring the Boys Home. Yes, I've gone with Frida Payne um, in part because uh, it's one of the big, big uh, Vietnam records. Uh, 71, the war is now uh, tipped to being deeply unpopular on the home front. And soul musicians who going back over maybe to the early 60s, had been quite patriotic with their songs about, you know, uh, soldiers, the love letters, you know, wait for me till you come back, all that stuff. It had now turned and now it was about bringing the US servicemen out of Vietnam and admitting defeat. Uh, and this is one of the big, big records of this time. Frida Payne, who's a great, great Detroit singer, um, had signed for Invictus Records, which we were mentioning uh, earlier, which yep. was the record label that Holland Dozier Holland, the uh, great Motown uh, writing production team, had set up because they'd fallen out of um, fallen out of contractual love with Motown in 1967, and they'd set up their own uh, their own little um, label, which was bringing out fantastic. Uh, records chairman of the board being one of the, the really big ones and this was one of the big records as well um, Bring the Boys uh, Home by Frida Payne And I believe um, General Johnson might have co-wrote this song as well I think so, he did, yeah Sorry, it's a bit of a gear change isn't it for Frida Payne from the sort of band of gold yeah, classic yeah. soul pop to, to stuff like this you yeah. know yeah, Van de Gold was probably by some distance her most famous record. And as you say, it was pop soul. It was classic kind of post-Motown. Uh, but one of the things that I really, uh, really liked about this was that Lamont Dozier, who was the Dozier of Holland, Dozier Holland, who'd written so many hits for the Supremes and the Four Tops uh, and now were working on their own label, they were still managing out their obligations to Motown. So the first two years at Invictus had to be conducted in quite deep secrecy. And all the credits that they put on the label um, was uh, Wayne Dunbar features quite heavily as one of their writers, Wayne Dunbar. And in actual fact, Wayne, Wayne County is the main county in Detroit. So it's literally the local council, so it'd be like um, <laughs> calling yourself Strathclyde or something <laughs> like that. Um, and the Dunbar uh, managed to interview him, and I was quite intrigued by that. And he said that he had a primary school called Mrs. Lily Dunbar, who had um, the first of all, she'd reached over, told me the story, reached over his shoulder and looked at something he was writing in primary school and said, this is really, really good. Let's do more of this. And he said it's the first time in his life that anybody had said anything positive about him or his writing or whatever. And he had a kind of love affair with the memory of this woman, um, Mrs. Lily Dunbar. So although Motown thought, who's this uh, Wayne Dunbar that's writing all this hit music? It was Holland Dozier and Holland that were doing it. You know. That's a good story. 
and it was definitely having some sort of impact. There's always this argument about you know can music influence politics and stuff, but. I was reading that the um, the song got banned by the Armed Forces Radio and all yeah, that, yeah. you know. So it obviously had it had some some breakthrough to. Yeah, and I think it was one of those things that kind of rallied people at the time. Yeah, uh, people were kind of well, they were shifting in their mind about American America didn't want to admit that they'd lost the war in Vietnam, and so bringing the boys back home and conceding defeat was actually quite a kind of shell shock for the nation. And this song was one of the ones that said, no, 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 we've done enough. We've tried, we've failed. Uh, a lot of people have died. A lot of people have come back in body bags. Many, many Vietnamese people have died. Bring the boys back home. Absolutely. So let's hear it. From the album Contact, released in May 71, this is Bring the Boys Home by Frida Payne. So that was Frida Payne with Bring the Boys Home. So one song to finish with Stuart. You've chosen Edwin Starr and the song Stop the War. Well, you know what? Well, it's 1971. It's the streets of um, uh, Detroit. It's a city that's probably suffered more at the hands of the Vietnam War, with the exception, obviously, the people of uh, Vietnam itself. This is where most of the kind of body bags have come back. It's a city that's kind of been devastated by loss. Uh, its greatest uh, recording label, Motown, is at the heart of the city's reputation and creativity. And uh, we've got three records from our playlist. Uh, Frida Payne that we've just played, um, the one we're just about to play by Edwin Starr, and earlier, the phenomenal Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. And all of them in some way talk about the war in Vietnam and its impact on the city of Detroit. Up until now, uh, Edwin Starr was a classic kind of brilliant, brilliant male singer, but someone who probably kind of was more into traditional 60s pop soul. The great, great records that he brought out were often kind of cast in the pop culture of the time. So I spy for the FBI, uh, the um, uh, Agent 00 Soul. He had all these records that were about uh, the, the moment and the era. And one of the things that I like about Edwin Starr is that this record just simply, it's almost like, you know, when sometimes like an artist uh, screeches to halt and ch crunches through the brakes and goes in a different direction. And that's one of these songs. It's out in 1971. Couldn't be more um, uh, unambiguous about what he believes and it's simply Stop the War. Absolutely. To finish us, we've got uh, from the album involved, this is Stop the War, now by Edwin Starr. And am I right in saying, uh, Stuart, I'll probably put, stick this in the podcast actually, did he end up moving to England and then becoming part of the Northern Soul scene? He Edwin did, Starr? yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Stuart, did, I'm, yeah. Not, I'm not going to keep talking to you, but I've got okay. a question for you. And I've never thought about this before, but obviously the Northern Soul scene was the north of England. Was there, was there Northern Soul clubs in Scotland? back at that time? Yes, there was. Um, probably the one that's the most famous in the legacy uh, was uh, Allenton and Shots, the Miners' Welfare All-Nighter in Shots. Um, one of the reasons it was quite famous is that it brought a lot of buses up from England, particularly from Preston and Derby, and quite a lot of kind of well-known collectors would go there. So that would be the most famous of the Scottish ones, but there was Clouds in Edinburgh, 
There was a, a real range of different kind of uh, soul clubs. And of course, going back further in time into the 60s, all the various mod clubs and bars that were in Right. That were in Scotland. So that, that I just time. almost tonight it's just occurred to me was was the Northern Soul scene at the start just you know basically around Wigan in the north of England, but that, that kind of makes more sense. We are doing the rap now, Stuart mate. So that's us played all your songs from 1971. Now you've heard them and some of the stories around them. Still happy with 71 as your chosen year? Oh yes, absolutely, no question, no doubt, uh, no competition. Uh, I take it you're going to end the podcast now and not do any more. <laughs> we might. <laughs> somebody, might, somebody might cut us off anyway. I think what they turn around is they say, game over. Game over. Before we finish, Stuart, where can we find you on Twitter? You can find me at Detroit67book, and that's my personal Twitter account. Uh, DMs are open, and I'm always friendly on Twitter. I'm yep. not one of these horrible trolls, you know. I can speak from experience on that. I really appreciate yeah. you joining us today, Stuart. It's been great. And the songs you've selected from 71 uh, definitely makes it a contender for the best year. Today's podcast Absolutely. and the supporting playlist can be found on Spotify. Join the chat on Facebook using Over Our Garden Wall or find us on Twitter at Over Our Wall. So with me, Dee, we will be hopefully be back soon with another guest proposing pop music's greatest year. Thanks again to Stuart yeah. for today. And until next time, stay safe, everyone. <laughs>